Before I get into it, just a word to say what a joy it was to be with our youth this past week. Uh, Just a terrific group of young people and chaperones who were pretty good too. But to be with them in such kind of close-knit ways to see friendships forming and faith being developed was just such a joy. So thanks for letting me to be with you all, even though I couldn't be there the whole week. If you were asked to come up with a list of Bible highlights, what would make your list? Maybe the first chapter of Genesis, in the beginning God created, or the call stories of Abraham and Moses, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah. Psalms 23, 100, 121. Or maybe the suffering servant songs from Isaiah. Or the Christmas stories of Matthew and Luke. Luke 15 with the stories of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the two lost sons. One of the gospel depictions of the crucifixion or resurrection or perhaps the post-resurrection encounter like the one with Doubting Thomas or on the road to Emmaus. Or maybe from Acts, the Pentecost story or letters of Peter and Paul or even John hanging out up there on Patmos. For most of us, I think Romans chapter 8 would certainly make the cut. Some years back, we launched a new Sunday school class called The New Beginnings. And we had a four-week block that needed filling, so the leadership talked me doing a, a, a series called How Firm a Foundation, Text on Which to Build a Life. It became my attempt to lift up chapters and verses that I thought were sort of a, a canon within a canon, the, the kind of highlights You know, one of my seminary professors, Bruce Metzger, was asked by Reader's Digest one time to make a Reader's Digest Bible. And he basically cut out about two-thirds of the Old Testament and a third of the New Testament, and this wonderful, saintly man received unbelievable hate mail for doing such a dastardly thing. I didn't receive any hate mail gratefully. But when I came to Romans chapter 8, I wrote pretty much all of it. Chapter 8 of Romans is one of the highlights of the whole New Testament. It concludes the second major section of Paul's letter to the Christians in Rome. And in these verses, Paul turns from the problem of the law and its servitude to sin to the power which saves the Christian from law and sin and which represents the promise of God's final victory over the powers of evil. That power, Paul says, is God's Spirit living with us. New Testament scholar Dale Bruner calls chapter 8, sanctification's key. Believers in Jesus Christ have God's Holy Spirit within their lives. And verses 31 through 39 becomes uh, not just a conclusion, but a, a crescendo of this whole section. And so turn with me now as we read Romans 8, 26 through 39. Hear the word of God. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. 
For we do not know how to pray as we ought. But that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And God, who searches the heart, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to God's purpose. For those whom God foreknew, God also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son, in order that He might be firstborn within a large family, And those whom God predestined, God also called. And those whom God called, God also justified. And those whom God justified, God also glorified. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? God who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for us all, will God not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or the sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You might not realize it, but the place of music in Christian worship was a hotly debated topic in the early centuries of the church's life. Because music was a prominent feature in pagan worship, church leaders feared its use in worship would blur the distinctive identity of the Christian community. The matter was resolved in the early church when Christian theologians, drawing on the work of Pythagoras, concluded that music offered as prayer brought people into harmony with the music of the spheres, the music of heaven. The early church's debate about music came to mind when I was working on the passage from Matthew that I preached on a couple weeks ago. This generation is like a child sitting in the marketplace calling out to others, we played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a funeral song for you and you didn't mourn. Instead of seeking to be in harmony with the the music of heaven, that is Jesus, the world wants Jesus to dance to its song. Which raises the question, who calls the tune for our lives? The metaphor is implicitly present in Paul's description of how the Spirit intercedes with its own kind of music, with sighs too deep for words, that are tuned to the will of God. 
There's a musical exchange going on between the profoundest dimensions of ourselves and the living spirit of God. It's music because it's beyond speech. And it's mystery because it's beyond sound. Will we acknowledge this sacred harmony and let it shape our lives? Will we let God call the tune? It's revealing to note that the spiritual seekers of our own generation often talk about wanting to live in harmony with nature or in harmony with all things. Harmony is a primal metaphor for aligning our existence with the source and sustainer of all that is. It's a metaphor that works not just across generations, but across the centuries. Harmony is the metaphor that freed the church to accept music and worship, and harmony is what our own spiritual hungry generation seeks. If the harmony of our lives is to be true and enduring, then it will begin when we allow God to call the tune, when we allow ourselves to attend to the Spirit, who even now is singing in our hearts. I'm grateful that the early church figured out the role of music because one of the greatest joys of last week was seeing our high schoolers worshiping in the cavernous Anderson Auditorium with about 1,200 other youth singing to the glory of God. During the keynote, they were reminded that their foundational, as is ours, is established in baptism, that each of you are a child of God, claimed, called, beloved. A gift of going to a youth conference for old folks like me is learning some new songs along the way. And one song that was woven through the conference that gave vision for the kind of church we want to be sang, I want a house with a crowded table and a place by the fire for everyone. Let us take on the world while we're young and able and bring us back when the day is done. With this text from the letter to the Rome church in Rome, Paul is telling the Romans that they are God's children. To make his argument, Paul takes the Romans all the way back to creation of the place where God's relationship with God's people. In the verses leading up to our passage, Paul tells the Romans that all of creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. But this groaning isn't, isn't limited to creation. It's also the Romans who have been groaning because they have been waiting to become God's children through adoption. This imagery of labor pains and adoption lets the Romans know that God has been worked since the very beginning of the world to make the Romans children of God. At the time Paul wrote, the Roman church was made up of both Jews who had converted to Christianity and non-Jewish Gentiles. As Paul writes to this mixed group, he knows that those who identify as Jews believe they are children of God through birth because as Jews, their ancestors were part of the original covenant God made with God's people. But those who identify as Gentiles, on the other hand, are not sure exactly how they could possibly be children of God since their ancestors were not included in that original covenant. And this is why Paul uses the language of adoption because he wants the Gentiles to understand that they've been brought into the family of God by adoption through Christ's death and resurrection. 
This work of inclusion for Jews and Gentiles alike is what God has been doing since the beginning of time. And as we move further along in our passage, we come to find out that God's work in the lives of the Romans is not complete. Because as Paul tells the Romans, God is still at work in their lives through the work of the Spirit. God wants, in a sense, a house with a crowded table and a place by the fire for everyone, both Jews and Gentiles. All things work together for good for those who love God. That's probably not the first thought that sprang into Jacob's mind the morning after his wedding on discovering how his father-in-law had succeeded in marrying off both daughters and gaining an extra seven years of labor and a single blow. Yet in the long perspective of Genesis, part of the point is to see God's hand even in the duplicity and the half-faith of the patriarchs. Jacob himself, after all, was no stranger to trickery. As New Testament scholar N.T. Wright reminds us, the Pauline claim is always a statement of faith, part of the faith in the Creator God, which looking at Jesus' resurrection deduces both God's steadfast commitment to the original creation and His determination to rescue it from the bondage and decay. Paul's enormous claims about the victory that has already been accomplished in Christ regularly, in my experience, raises the question, how can you say that, granted the mess the world is still is in? And Romans 8 supplies part of that answer. Paul's statement about being more than conquerors is made in the teeth of persecution and famine, nakedness, peril, and the sword. Paul wasn't in jail when he wrote this letter, but he had not been long before he would be in jail yet again. It must have looked to the outward eye as though the rulers, the powers, and everything else in creation were having it all their own way, and that the purposes of God entrusted to this strange little man with a fanatical mission had been stopped dead in his tracks. But the gospel events of the death, resurrection, and intercession of Jesus the Messiah meant that he could look them in their face. These events unveil and make real and present to a believer a love which goes deeper than all the forces of the universe. Faith, hope, and love are not deductions from our day-to-day experience. They are rooted in God's faithfulness, God's purposes, and above all, God's own love seen and known in Jesus and in the presence of the Spirit. Jewish onlookers from Jesus' day until now have always questioned how the kingdom of God can be in any sense present as long as the world remains the way it does. Look out the window, they say. It's obvious that the kingdom hasn't come. The gospel reading that goes with this Sunday is from Matthew 13 and contains the little parables that are in part answers to the question, the the tiny seed which will grow, the leaven that will work in the lump of, the treasure that's hidden, but those who find it know its worth. The kingdom is truly here. One day it will be obvious. Like Jacob, we are called to patience and faith. One person said, faith is the bird that feels the light and sings to greet the dawn. 
while it's yet dark. I like that. Two weeks ago, close to 20 of us landed at the Chautauqua Institution in western New York. Now that sounds a little bit like an asylum, but think of it as a summer camp for nerds. There are lectures and worship, classes and symphonies, and over 300 gardens to explore in the small Victorian lakeside enclave. And did I mention that the high was just 73 degrees? Did, did I mention that, John? I don't think I did. It was glorious. One of our folks uh, we were anxious to hear was Kate Bowler, the best-selling author and professor at Duke Divinity School, who has studied the prosperity gospel, a, a creed that sees fortune as a blessing from God and misfortune as a mark of God's disapproval. At age 35, Kate was diagnosed with stage 4 colon cancer. Her journey through suffering and treatment and living with the awareness of her life's fragility and precariousness produced the book, Everything Happens for a Reason, and Other Lies That I Loved. She warns against what she calls toxic positivity that denies the reality of suffering and grief because she sees the difference between an American can-do performative optimism on the one hand and faith that is grounded in the promise that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, the man of sorrows who is acquainted with grief on the other. Saturday, a week ago, I drove from Chautauqua, New York, to Montreat, North Carolina. It's, it's not far. It's just a straight line, you know, on the map. Uh, and along the way, I stopped at the New River Gorge Bridge in West Virginia. A anybody ever go there? I mean, what an amazing thing that is. It's a steel arch bridge, 3,030 feet long over the New River Gorge, and with an arch of 1,700 feet long, it was the world's longest single-span arch bridge when it was built in 1977. It's also one of the highest vehicular bridges in the world, so if you're scared of that kind of thing, you might want to stay away from West Virginia. But it's also beautiful. But standing and looking at it made me think of how Jesus has bridged the chasm between God and us. As the Apostle Paul puts it elsewhere, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he existed in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave, assuming human likeness and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him even more highly and gave him the name which is above every name. Jesus is that bridge. And when we experience suffering, we know that he has experienced it as well. Paul writes that neither death nor life will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And William Sloan Coffin, Presbyterian pastor who lost his son Alex in a tragic car accident, goes on to say, If death, then, is no threat to our relationship with God, it should be no threat to anything. If we don't know what is beyond the grave, we do know who 
is beyond the grave. And Christ resurrected links the two worlds telling us that we really live only in one. God calls the tune. Do we hear it? He bids us join the chorus singing, I want a house with a crowded table and a place by the fire for everyone. Let us take on the world while we are young and able and bring us back together when the day is done. Thanks be to God for such love and such a call that we might give our lives to. Amen.